Here we are. I'm John Atak, and here is Janice Gillum Grady. It, it, our paths have been crossing for decades, I think, now. So wonderful to finally meet you. Yes, you too. I'm, we've never even talked, I don't think. No, we've corresponded a little bit from time to time. Yeah. But um, so this is great. And um, yeah, be, before we get started on anything else, I, I want to recommend your books to, to people because there have now been more than 100 books about Scientology, and a few of them are vital. And yours are vital. That's that's my perception. So thank you. I actually have copies of them right here with me. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, they, they, I've had a lot of comments on how good they are. It's a, a very so, important, very important part of the history. Um, and because you were, you know, as close to Hubbard as it was possible to get for a very long time, right. then, then, then what you related is important. It's very important yes. to the story. So, yeah, and, and you know, I tried to write the books in such a way I wasn't putting my own thoughts and feelings, but just tell it as it is, so the reader can form their own opinion yeah i i followed very much the same path i mean in, in writing let's sell these people a piece of blue sky i don't make any comment on the technology right. of scientology now by the time i published it i had come to disbelieve every aspect of the technology of scientology <laughs> but that's that's where i am and it's for other people to make their own minds up exactly people have to do their own research and have their own beliefs so we're gathered here today um, because one of your friends has, has gone missing. And um, so tell me, tell me about that. Yeah, you know, the Barton family, the father, we've known him since before I was born. He was friends with my parents. And so we grew up as kids, or his kids and us. We all grew up together and they followed us into the Sea Org. The, the kids did all of them but one. Anyway, the parents then in, you might have known them at St. Hill in the 80s. Were you there? Nolan, yeah, until, until 83, yeah. So. Yeah, Nolan, Marion Barton. I know Marion was in the choir and, mm. you know, Noel did some auditing. But in the 80s, just around the time of the whole mission holder uh, catastrophe, they went back to Australia and they hooked up with some old Scientologists who were now declared or squirrel group because they were mission holders. Mm -hmm. But Nolan Marion were like, this is like the old mission we all had in Melbourne. Mm -hmm. They really enjoyed that connection with their friends. Anyway, I know that Liz, the oldest daughter, disconnected from them at that point. And then they continued, Noel and Marion continued with their life. And one of the daughters, Blue, and actually went back and visited them with her kids. And, but she remained in good standing. Mm -hmm. And then um, the kids just stopped writing them and being in contact with them because of this whole thing that happened with the mission, mm -hmm. with them connecting up with old Scientologists. Anyway, that was in the 80s. You know, here we are now, 40 years later, and they don't hear from Liz Ingber, their oldest daughter, and Jeanette Alcock, or everyone knew her as Nettie. Hmm. They don't hear from them. And then they had a younger brother, Andrew, who I've since found out was seven years 
on the RPF. And then apparently he routed out in 2003. But even in 2010, Liz didn't know where he was. Mm. So here we are with this missing son who's now six, probably 60 years old, 59 years old. And he's been missing for years. No one knows where he is. And we do now have a list of Andrew Bartons in Australia. And we've got to now go through that and start calling them. But we didn't find a lead in the US. So, you know, we're just continuing to try and locate him. And who knows if, if he didn't go back and see the parents because he's still got that prison of belief mm. that if he contacts them, he'll be make his standing even worse. Who mm. knows? Absolutely. And, and he's one of, of the many disappeared over, over the years. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and there's more. And I'm actually on my channel, Our Scientology Stories, Peeling the Onion. I'm actually starting a new segment where every week I'm going to call out Scientologists or Sea Org members who have disconnected from their families or not been in touch with them. Because to me... And you know this, the first course you do in Scientology is the Hubbard Communication course. You've got to learn how to communicate. The first grade of Scientology is grade zero, mm -hmm. communication. Mm -hmm. And here's this organization that thinks they're going to help the planet and they can't even communicate with their own families. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, hey, get your backyard together before you start handling outside. So, so every week I'm going to try and call people out that have not been in touch. Like next, this coming Saturday, I have a 92-year-old woman who hasn't heard from her two daughters since the 90s. It's, it's atrocious. It is. And, and I mean, as you say, it, it, it's one of the conflicts. And when we deal with Scientology, we are often dealing with extremes where something is said, you know, when in doubt, communicate. A book that's been exactly. with, withdrawn for many years now because they stopped <laughs> communicating with Ruth Minchel, who wrote it. But when in doubt, communicate is, is a Ron Hubbard statement. More communication, yes. not less, is the answer. Uh, a being is as alive as he can communicate. He is as dead as he cannot. And right. written into this then, of course, is all of the, the mid-60s stuff about disconnection, and the fair game law and all of the things that came along with that. So we find right. Scientology claiming to enhance families, the so-called second dynamic, but actually splitting them apart. And Yeah, but you know, having worked with Hubbard for a long time, the, yeah, he has, he has things awful wrong with him and he's been very destructive towards families. Mine, mine very much so. You know, he destroyed that family unit. But back in 68, I believe it was, he said there'll be no more disconnection. We have the technology to handle it. So here we are all these years later, and they're still disconnecting. Mm -hmm. And he even, there's an OODS item, an orders of the day item, where he's telling the crew members, write to your friends and family so that they know that you're okay. Mm -hmm. You know, so he's having to tell people to do that. 
and that that's childish you know, for the Sea Org members not to be communicating with their families. Yeah, and as you say, grade zero, the first level in Scientology gives you the ability to communicate freely with anyone on any subject, or so we are told. And that's right, from anywhere. <laughs> yeah, and in, indeed, one of the exactly. one of one of the very last policies, which was probably Ron Hubbard, uh, was the ten September nineteen eighty three PTSness and disconnection. And that's the point, I, I remember it, because that's the point where I left, because right. I was being told that I to disconnect from my friend Ira Chaleff, and I was not willing to do that. And for six months, I was, you know, writing up lines higher and higher and higher until eventually got the standing order number one line to, to run Hubbard, allegedly, right. and, and got a letter back which said, your letter is on my desk. And that was the whole fruit of six months of inquiring as to why this strange policy was being um, readopted. Re I think it is right. fair to say that, that Ron Hubbard thrived on contradiction. And so there's yes. an opposite to almost everything that's said. It's almost as if his goals, problems, masses were being established by giving us contradictions, double binds. Yes. Just about everything. Yeah, very true. A lot of contradiction in what he said as opposed to what he did. Mm. Definitely. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I... But, I um, go ahead. No, go, go ahead. Well, I, I mean, I was going to say I was touched by one of the expressions you used in your first book where you, you refer to the Apollo as a slave ship. And, you know, it, you know, having interviewed Mike Rinder at some length about his experiences and, and quite a lot of other people along the way, there is this awful contradiction of these people absolutely determined to to achieve total freedom, complete freedom, but in this confined, tyrannical situation. I mean, I think the, the poem that Ari Chalef contributed to your first book about Pink Seas expresses yes. a lot of it, that hope that, that, that we all felt that was then confined within, you know, this situation. It, how do you feel now about Scientology itself? Do you still believe that, that it's a valuable and useful set of ideas? No, I don't use it myself. Mm. And I'm not going to, you know, there's people who felt it helped them, my parents. Of course. They, they both felt it helped them, and they got thousands of people into Scientology. Mm. You know? Absolutely. My dad did. was... My dad was one of the biggest lecturers on the subject of Scientology, mm. you know, so I grew up with that around me all the time. Mm. And, and we left Australia because the government interfered with our faith. Yep. And that changed the whole destiny of my life, mm. you know, from government interference. So that's where I'm like, it's up to each individual to figure it out themselves. Mm. But I do feel how the Sea Organ Scientology is being run is not what it was all about. Mm. It's been altered so much that when you join in 68, the freedoms that you had then were no longer there 22 years later when I left. And that's where I was like, like this is getting worse and worse and worse and not something I agreed to. Yeah, absolutely. And I see. And I see the same for those people that are still in there. It's, you know, like putting a frog in water and turning up the heat and slowly boiling it. 
and they don't recognize the change. <laughs> and that now their freedoms have all gone, but they don't see that. They're these dedicated members marching onwards and we're out there attacking them. But then, but as Lawrence Wright says, it's a prison of belief. <laughs> And, and that, when that book came out, it didn't click to me what, what Larry was saying. Mm. And, it, you know, and that's where I came up with the peeling the onion, <laughs> because it comes off in layers that you mm. can finally see it is a prison of belief. But, but what is that belief? The, it, the belief has changed over time, because as I said before, it starts with communication. They don't communicate anymore, you know? So that's a major change over the years. Mm. And when people joined the SEAL, you had liberty, you had time off. They don't get that anymore. You got a three week leave of absence to go see your family. Mm. They don't get that anymore. You know, so it's all these things have changed and and probably a lot of them aren't okay with it, but they don't know how to get out of the situation or to change the dictatorship that's going on. Yeah, and, and you have that that complete contradiction, you know, that total freedom has become, and, and Herbert himself did say of total freedom that it's a trap, and and then, yes. then he sold it. Um, but talking, you know, as I interviewed people who, you know, like your parents had been involved in the 50s, and then people who were part of the St. Hill group, you know, Hannah Whitfield, Otto Rose, John McMaster, um, right. that there seemed to be different sort of eras in Scientology. So the, I remember talking with George Hay, who was the guy who uh, invited Hubbard to England in the first place in 51. By the time I talked with him, of course, he'd been declared suppressive, which is what happened to just about everybody from that period. Yeah. But he, he and, and um, remember another guy called Derek Colley, their whole attitude or even Cyril Vosper's attitude towards Ron Hubbard was, was not that he was a, a savior or a messiah or as he himself claimed Maitreya, the, the future Buddha. He was a guy who'd come up with some ideas that they quite liked. When I interviewed Derek Colley, he said, you know, when I saw OT3, I thought he's gone completely mad, you know. And yeah. then I decided I'll do it. I'll see what the e-meter does. And the e-meter read, so, so I did it. And I said to him, did you ever check the e-meter out? Um, because I'm well aware of you know, the poor quality of, of those meters at that time. Um, right. And he hadn't thought about that, you know, that if the meter readings were not genuine, then the material itself was not genuine. I have the sense that, that Hubbard himself was a deeply conflicted person, that um, his own attitude towards us and himself varied from day to day. Um, I think the first person who brought it up with me was back in 1984 when I first met Jerry Armstrong, and he said Hubbard was trying to cure himself. And you look back to the claims of cure from Dianetics onwards, and they are lists of things that Hubbard suffered from, asthma, short-sightedness, bursitis, which I'd never heard of before. Um, and, and I think there's this thing that, that he as with faith healers, that, that for three days after you see a faith healer, the adrenaline keeps you going and you feel cured and have this sense that every six months or so, Hubbard would feel he'd finally cracked it and he'd now got something that worked. He'd then sell that thing and then he'd fall back into 
you know, his old conditions, which were, you know, he had problems, let's say. I mean, yeah. uh, physical problems and psychological problems. He was a man. I think the thing that really put me off Scientology, and you can really talk talk to this, was his bad temper. That my idea of a Maitreya or a Buddha was a serene human being, and Ron Hubbard was certainly not that. Yeah, and I even as a kid, I used to think about that. You know, this is a man who's supposed to be helping people with their emotions, but he had the most explosive emotions. So even as a kid, I did think about that. And I used to, when I'd go on watch, because I'd go on watch and work with him six hours a day, I knew he could be explosive and I hated being around him when it happened. And I used to tell myself before I got the final flight of stairs, I can do this. I can get through this watch. Uh, you know, let me try and get through this watch without him getting mad, me keeping him calm, you know. And then I'd go in and, you know, report for duty. And I'd, I would take it as a win. Every day I got through a watch without him being explosive about something, mm. you know. and And I would think, how could this person have come up with all of this with this temper, mm. but it definitely got people to get things done. <laughs> I, I suppose there is that to it, yeah. And and your story is is um, I mean it's wonderful that you survived. Let's put it that way because yeah. <laughs> it, it was a dreadful, dreadful thing. It, it sounds as if your parents were were really decent people, really smart, decent people. They split up, and you and your two siblings ended up as yep. as the first Commodore's messengers on board the ship at, towards the end of 1968. Is that right? When you were 11? I, I, I just, I was on the ship when I was 11. Mm. I just turned 12 when Hubbard came back aboard the Royal Scotman mm. and I became a messenger. And then later on, I got my sister to be a messenger. My brother was uh, on the ship for a bit. Then he went to the Avon River and was with our mother. And then when he came back, he worked in the engine room and later in accounting. Mm. Uh, but he mar he married one of the messengers, Doreen Gillum, of Doreen course. Smith. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, you know, again, you, your mother was a magnetic personality. She is legendary, um, Yvonne Gillum, um, later Yvonne Gillum Jench, when she married Heber. Um, and... It's, as I say, I interviewed John McMaster at, at, at some length way back in about 1984. Yeah. And it fascinated me with John that he was so beloved, that so many people had such high regard for him. Yet when I interviewed him, that's not, that was not my experience at all. I met a man who was very bitter, um, very distressed about the world. Um, right. And an alcoholic. There are no two ways about it. He was a hardcore alcoholic by the time I met him. Also, I mean, after my first meeting with him, I wrote to him and said, look, it's okay to be gay. It, it's fine to be gay. That there's even a group yeah. in Los Angeles called the Gay Theta Association. Why don't you get in touch with them? And I got this seven page handwritten letter back from him saying, I'm not a homosexual. How dare you accuse me of being a homosexual? And I, you know, happened to mention this to Otto Rose. Who, who laughed and calls his assistant over and said, when he was on the phone with me last, what did John say? And they 
told me the obscene thing that, that John had proposed to Otto. So he was somebody who was, was trapped in the sort. I, I had a phone call from a, a guy who was um, a set designer in Hollywood uh, years ago, 30 years ago. And, and he said um, he'd never understood why it was that out of the first 10 clears, seven of them were gay. And he said, we called ourselves the queer clears. So, wow, I, I've never heard that. Yeah. And, uh, I, and he was, you know, do you, can you explain that to me? And I said, well, blackmail, <laughs> you know, that if, if there was any trouble, Hubbard would have this thing that even though it, it had just become, just about become legal in, in some parts of the Western world, right. gay people were still very much targeted. And oh, yes. Yeah. When I told John about him being the, the world's first real clear. There'd been many, many false clears declared before, but he was the first real clear. I mean, Hubbard in Dianetics, Modern Science and Mental Health basically claimed that there were already 272 clears. There weren't any. There weren't any. There never were any. But John, when when I said, you know, how, how did you become the first clear? He said, well, Hubbard told me. He came up to me one day and said, right, you're done now. And you're, yeah. you're now clear, you know. So you've got this very confusing situation um, where John toured the world with his secretary, Colin, um, and there was all of this adulation. I have the sense, you know, I put him forward as an example because I have the sense that your mum wasn't like that, that your mum was thoroughly genuine, that, that there was no division, that she really believed in this, she really wanted to help the world. And to do that, Hubbard demanded that she sacrifice her children, you know, and so kept making deals whereby you were meant to be with her, but then she'd be sent off somewhere else or, you know, something would happen with you. Right, right. And, and so I would have to say that from what I've always thought a real Scientologist was, that would have been my mother. Yeah. You know, she she had that beingness and granted beingness and was all about helping others. And that's what I've always thought a real Scientologist was supposed to be is what she portrayed. Mm. I, I mean, I, I reading a testimony, I, I think it was from the Clearwater hearings. It was a woman called Laurie Taverna, who she was um, training as a, an OT5 auditor, so very high level. And she went home to Los Angeles for a break and decided she wasn't going back. And she said that many people came to her afterwards and said, but I got into Scientology because I wanted to be like you. And Laurie said, I've always been like this. Scientology didn't yeah. do this. Do you think that would be true for your mother, that, that, that she was naturally a, a, a positive and magnetic person? Yes, yeah. She definitely was very positive and, and uh, magnetic. People just drew to her. Um, she grew up in high society Brisbane and was always one for putting on events and parties and bringing people together. So that that's how she was raised. Mm. I mean, you know, she had a grandfather and two great-grandfathers who were Supreme Court judges. Mm. And... So she was within all those circles and knew this governor and that governor. And so it was something she already had, though she was she was a kindergarten director and, and kids, kids just flocked to her. Mm. And then she, and she treated people the same as she would have treated the children mm. with, you know, with gentle and care.
Yeah. I mean, in, in talking with um, John McMaster, he, he had various complaints about, about Ron Hubbard. And one of them was this whole idea of the suppressive person. And, and he said, I, I went to him and I, you know, about 1965 or something, 66, I went to him and I said, why aren't we helping these people? Surely we could change the world faster if, if we right. sorted out their problems. And, and Hubbard, you know, completely rejected this. And he was, well, and now we've got disconnection. Now we're running away from them, you know, because we can't face them. We disconnect right. from them, which, you know, it, it was a fair point. It's a fair point. Yeah. Well, you know, in 65, my mother actually got declared. Yeah. Dur during, during the whole inquiry into Scientology by the Victorian government, she was declared. And as much as I could find out, it was because people kept wanting to leave the Hazy and come back to our mission. Which is the Hubbard Association of Scientologists International, the, the headquarters mm -hmm. group, yeah, in 65. Yes, and and if I went to the Hazy as a kid, it was always dark and dingy and I just didn't like it. But our mission was so upbeat and everyone loved it. Mm -hmm. And so mom would forward, would send people to the Hazy for services, they hated it and they would come back and they would tell other people about the mission mm. and so it was again my mother's magnetic personality mm. but what's she to do she's gonna service them and try and encourage them to go back to Hazzy and they wouldn't mm. so she ends up declared and everyone's told they have to disconnect from her and in writing my book I called these old timers and they're like no we never disconnected from her you know because nobody believed in the disconnection mm. And then, you know, nowadays I look at it and who are all the declared people? They're people who have left the seal because they disagree with the changes that have happened and that they have no freedom anymore. They have no life to make decisions for themselves and they leave and therefore they become suppressive people where there's, there's probably more people outside of Scientology than there are in now. I, I think there are there are more former members, there are more people who've had some contact with Scientology and the independent movement, and I have my problems right. with certain people there, but the independent movement is larger than the International Association of Scientologists. The closest we got right. about two years ago, there was, and I'm not deeply involved in this, I don't research this anymore, I just occasionally take the advantage of talking to somebody who interests me. Um, yeah. But... Uh, Tony Ortega had somebody talking with him who was saying there are 25,000 people left in the IAS. We have actually an 80s internal report, somebody gave it to me, uh, which says 25,000 paid up members uh, in the late 80s. Right. And I think probably what um, Jeff Hawkins did, you know, promoting Dianetics in, you know, in, in the 1990s, swelled the membership some but they're, they're now down okay. to very little i would say that there are probably you know while scientology has claimed anywhere up to 11 million members i, I think they're counting body thetans to add yeah. that one but yeah. um that, that there probably are two or three million people who've had some form of scientology in part because there are more than 200 splinter groups from scientology so these right. ideas have leached out into the culture 
some of them into quite powerful groups, uh, reevaluation co-counseling, for example, under Harvey Jackins. They had the whole of the Open University here for 20 years using what is basically book one Dianetics um, before Jackins' sex scandals started to erupt and, and things changed. Yeah. But, but these ideas have gone out into the world um, for better or worse. And the problem is the for worse aspect of that, that yes. there are people, there are a lot of casualties along the way, a lot of people. I met a guy, an Australian guy, who'd spent 20 years housebound because Ron Hubbard declared him suppressive and he didn't want to hurt anybody. And it, oh it just my, took yeah, an afternoon yeah. to undo that. It was awful. Yeah. Well, yeah, being called a suppressive person, that that can get to some people. But I, I you know, I've been declared a suppressive person and I really just don't care. Yeah, me neither. I so, so what? Right. And Harvard said there's 2% suppressive. Mm -hmm. and, and I already know when people were being signed to the Rehabilitation Project Force as suppressive people because they rock slammed on the e-meter, mm -hmm. the percentages were way off until Kimma Douglas says to Hubbard, something is wrong that so many good executives are being said that they're rock slammers and have evil purposes. And that's when that was all looked into and the whole thing was undone. And that's how I view it today is these people that are leaving, they're not leaving because of overts and withholds and because they're suppressive. They're ARC broken with their lives not being under their own control and being told what to do. Mm. And there is one suppressive there at the top. The real suppressive person is David Miscavige. Mm. And no matter what anyone says about L. Ron Hubbard, he would have RPF'd David Miscavige many times over for what he has done. He has destroyed everything every good person has tried to do to help Scientology help others. Yeah, and, and turn it in, into a, 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 as you say, a prison, as Lawrence Wright, a prison of belief, where yes. what we're now finding is that people like Nancy Cartwright handing over such enormous 21 million dollars she says she's given to Scientology such enormous amounts of money so that David Miscavige can sit with his Ventolin asthma inhaler in one hand and a camel cigarette in the other hand and tell us that he's the savior of mankind you know um so scuba diving all these donations yeah and wear thousand dollar shoes and drink blue mountain yeah. coffee made with distilled water and all, all of this stuff but and and he's, <clears throat> excuse me, but he's pretty much a, a kind of Philadelphia street thug. That's all he is. He that, that he's not a, a a learned human being in any way. Uh, right. He's somebody who understands bullying. The the first comment I had about directly about David Miscavige was from Dee Dee Bogardin, and um, when I was in touch with her way back in '84, and she said the thing with David was, and she was at that time theoretically the head of Scientology. She was the chairman of the yes. watchdog committee, the, um, the ruling body. And she said the thing with David was that if you wanted something doing, he could do it. So if there was a wall that you wanted knocking down, you'd say, David, I want the wall knocking down. He would lower his head and charge and the wall right. would come down. And yes. I, you know, there's a Jesse Prince, when, when he talked for us at our Toronto seminar, said that he'd actually, at Hubbard's orders, run a confessional on David Miscavige, which he believed, is pretty sure that never got back to him. 
And during this confessional, Miscavige, and he said he came into the room in tears. He said during this confessional, Miscavige admitted that, that he and Pat Broker had used Hubbard's money to go gambling and whoring in Las Vegas. And I've heard, I've heard that. I mean, I, and I also, you know, just before David Mayo passed away, he came and visited me in Las Vegas. And hmm. So we had many deep conversations because I'd known David since, well, I was three years old when he first came to Melbourne and met my parents. Yeah. So, I, you know, and I've always stayed in touch with David, but he had actually told me about one of the messengers who was married having an affair with Miscavige. You know, and I'm sure that didn't come up anywhere. Mm. <laughs> you know, he, he's definitely got his own overs and withholds that have been missed for years. And yeah. it's him nuttier and nuttier. Yeah, and and I and I think that conflict was was there from the beginning. I think it was always developing. Um, in in the fifties, there are already signs that there's something there's something wrong. You know, um, I I would trace it back. Somebody somebody asked me uh, a few years ago. They wanted to give a, a talk at a, a, a cult monitoring group called Inform here in the UK. And this was an independent Scientologist. And he said, when did the harassment begin? And I said, well, I'd, I'd place it back to uh, the spring of 1952, when um, James Elliott, who's listed on Hubbard's letterhead as, as his business manager, stole the mailing list of the Wichita Foundation, which Hubbard had right. left. And I got this email back going, no, after David Mayo left, when did the harassment begin? It's like, so Taylor making the story. And I think things, I mean, there's that something very, maybe it's Rhodesia, maybe it's back then that Hubbard comes back from Rhodesia and makes this claim and OT can't make it on his own. What he doesn't tell us is that he wasn't on his own. There was a man called Morley Glazier with him. And he ordered Morley Glazier to break into government offices. Right. He was, he was caught and he was sent to jail. And that's why Hubbard was. So there was always this shadowy world as well as the, and, you know, the bright promises. Nibs, Nibs L. Ron Hubbard Jr. speaks of that as well. Yeah. And, and, you, and you know what was very interesting to me is when I was looking through, um, I was reading Fair Game by Steve Kinnean. Yeah. Very good book. And, he, and yeah, very excellent book, highly recommended. Mm. Um, he talks in there about the inquiry in Melbourne, which ended up banning Scientology. Well, they actually didn't recommend banning it, but they banned it anyway. Yeah. But in there, they bring up why they felt it should be banned was because the auditing sessions, they're keeping records of everybody's overts and withholds which could be used as blackmail. Mm. And that's exactly what was done. And the Guardian's office was doing that. Mm. People get withholds off and um, overts. And next thing you know, it's being the Guardian's office would call through people's PC folders to try and find crimes and things like that. And here's a, here's a, a good example. When... In 1982, I believe it was, I was 
being declared and offloaded because I was highly disaffected. And they took me down to the port captain's office to sign a declaration that I had smuggled guns into Spain. And I'm like, what? When I was 12, 11 years old, I had a Joburg set check. And it read on smuggling. And I said, well, I didn't really smuggle. I had my brother's air rifle, an air <laughs> rifle. Yeah, yeah. That's I had my brother's air rifle in the bottom of my suitcase when we arrived from England to Valencia to go on the ship. My suitcase was locked. Customs calls me over to unlock it. They see a little 11-year-old come over, and they're like, just wave me on. And I said, well, that's the only thing I can think of. I didn't declare the air rifle. So now all these years later, they're trying to get me to admit that I smuggled arms into Spain. <laughs> and, and so it becomes, I mean, when Neville Chamberlain was declared suppressive, um, it said, the declare something like, you know, before he entered Scientology, he already had a record of violence for hire, pimping, um, trafficking, what have you. And as Neville delightedly pointed out, he was eight years old when he got yeah. into Scientology. So he was That's quite right. something when he was a little boy and, yeah. and probably still is knowing, knowing him. But yeah, and, and the use of, of material from pre-clear folders, that's something that's often been asserted and has been difficult to pin down. But there is, in the Clearwater hearings, the um, attack on Ernie Hartwell, Adele Hartwell's husband. It's documented because you have, I think it's Ernie Martin who was in the geo, who actually did the cull. The order came from Hubbard. And and so this, this the kind of looking glass, the, you know, oh. the, it's a looking glass world. Things are very often the opposite of what they seem. Right. And especially with the Guardian's office. Mm. And I mean, I talked with a guy who'd been um, a telex operator for Hubbard for a period of time. And he said that I think it was uh, a quarter of all of the traffic that went by telex was coded, which meant that it was going to the Guardian's office to branch one. No, 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 no. Because we were on a ship and we didn't want people to know we were Scientology management, every management telex, every Scientology word was coded. Mm. This is not on the it ship. Was... This is in the, in the period onshore in, in California. Um, and Same thing. Yeah. So, but well, you said that, that a lot of traffic wasn't coded, but fair enough. You know, you were there. You saw and, it. And Hubbard never did a lot of direct stuff to the Guardian's office. That was through Mary Sue. Mm. He would have dinners with Mary Sue and give her instructions, and then she would send out the orders. But the telexes, I, I was in the telex unit mm. at the LRH external communication in Los Angeles when he just moved to L.A. and was trying to locate a place to move to. Yeah. So I coded and decoded all those telexes. Fair they enough. were not Guardian's office stuff. We were located in the Guardian's office external comm and using their equipment. Mm. And and then later on, they didn't like us being there, so we moved over to the FOLO. Mm. But it was the communications with the Guardian's office at that time was all about finding the La Quinta properties. Mm. Where the filming would be he done. Wasn't, 
in 77. Yeah, yeah, he wasn't doing other stuff. Mary Sue was the one who would handle all the geo stuff. Mm-hmm. And in fact, what seemed to have gotten her connected to all the Guardian stuff that she went to jail for is Henning Held had orders to take any of the instructions from her home. He kept them in a red box on his desk. And he was supposed to take them home with him every night. And she didn't type. Mary Sue hand wrote everything. Mm. And he stopped taking those things home. And so when the FBI raided, they found the red box with all Mary Sue's handwritten instructions. And that's what got her involved in that. Mm. And of course, that's not saying it's okay. It's not saying it's okay. It's just saying the evidence was in that red box. Yeah, and and it's very important that that you know, we we come to evidence and we deal with evidence. There there is so much speculation going on. I mean, in the last couple of weeks, I've got caught up in this thing about Charlie Manson, because the people writing about Manson, uh, various biographers, are not aware of Scientology's internal documents about Manson, and I didn't realise. I mean, I wrote about it first 30 years ago i didn't realize that this material is not broadly known and there is a compliance report to mary sue hubbard which the fbi seized in 1977 which lays out the whole detail you know that manson received 150 hours of auditing over a 14 month period it even lists some of the the processes that he had he also of course did training routine zero and he, he read scientology books what we can infer from that is is another matter. It should be in the record. It should be known about because um, it it is certainly one of the influences. But it doesn't make Scientology responsible in any way for what Charles Manson did or, or what his exactly. family did. But that they then sought desperately to cover it up. You also, as you say, you know, one of the the contradictions that bothered me was. Um, fairly early on, was Run's Journal 1967, RJ67, where he, he talks about not bothering with attackers. You know, they're the dogs yapping at the wheels of the fire engine. And then in the same talk, and it's a half-hour talk, he says that Mary Sue has hired professional intelligence agents to research the then Prime Minister Harold, King, uh, Harold Wilson, UK Prime Minister, and Cecil King, the press baron. And it's this contradiction. Here we're being told, no, we don't bother with critics. And here we're not talking about a private detective, though it was in fact a private detective. Um, yes. He's, he's saying an intelligence agent, somebody who's come from, and there's the admission of you know, what, what is going on in the background behind Scientology, right there in the open, that, that there's this department that is, is performing dirty tricks, that is investigating people running alongside right. you know I, I wrote a paper years ago called scientology religion or intelligence agency and both both things may be true the the extent to which i mean i don't know how you feel about this but certainly when i was in scientology I, from 74 to 83 i never thought it was a religion that that didn't i was a student of religion i knew what religions were they had worship and they had you know a set of doctrines spiritual doctrines but if people choose to believe in it as a religion, you know, I think we're both on the same page there. Yeah, that if, if somebody... I, I, I feel 
people consider Scientology to be their faith. Mm. And it's what they believe in. And that's what keeps them on the straight and narrow. And, and that's where I then find out the IRS has over 5,000 entities approved as religions. Mm. So I'm like, okay, well, if it's a faith, but yeah, it's, it's a very mixed bag. Mm. And it's, but it is what people believe, just like prison of belief. Mm. It's a belief. Yeah, and it it it's interesting. Yes, the Temple of Set, the Church of Satan, were registered as religions long before Scientology in the United States. Right, and it cannot, you know, under the Constitution, a tax office can't determine whether something is or isn't a genuine religion, and and shouldn't right. be trying to do that. I think you choose the right word when you say it's a faith. Now it's meant to be a scientific study of the human mind and spirit, but it is a faith. Right. It's a faith. Yeah. And that's where I look at, you know, the government in Victoria got involved in people's faith in what they believed was going to help them. And over 100 families in 1966 moved from Victoria and went to St. Hill. Hmm. You know, my parent, my mom was in England, my dad in Australia, and they got all those families out because it was now against the law to practice what they believed in. Which, which is palpably ridiculous. And, and I've, I've always been outspoken against you know, when the Germans and the Russians were, were looking at, at, at bans. Um, you know, I spoke out be, because that's not the way to deal with this. If there is something right. criminal and illegal within the group, and there is, then you prosecute it, yes. that. So human trafficking, for example, is certainly an aspect of Scientology and something that, that should be vigorously investigated. Um, and, and human trafficking that they're doing should not be happening. No. How that shouldn't be happening. It's not part of their forwarding of their beliefs. Mm. You know, it, it's just that's they get into this big stat push and everyone panics Thursday, two o'clock. And they come up with unusual solutions that then continue mm. for years and years and years. And it's just unusual solutions to a problem they didn't know how to solve because they were under pressure to get their stats up. Mm. And, and I mean, these things certainly go back to, to the, near the beginnings of the SEAL organization. Your own situation exemplifies this. Mike Rinder at the age of 18 in 1973 arrives on the ship uh, believing he's going to be trained and sent back to Australia as an executive. And it's explained to him that he's been traded. You know, yes. they've give, been given some courses and he now belongs, you know, to the sea organization on the Apollo. Um, yeah. It, and and this, so it continues. I mean, with many of the things, I, I think it was, I was talking with Karen de la Carriere and, and said, you know, Miscavige brought in this abortion rule. And she hesitated for a moment. She said it wasn't miscavage. It was practiced aboard the ship. Um, but let me see. Yes, it was practiced on you'd be board sent, the ship. You'd be sent to off the ship and to an outer org, which is the it idea was, still. Yes, we'd already experienced having children on the ship, and it was dangerous. Yeah. You know, I remember my, my sister-in-law's brother, 
the top of his finger at two years old was chopped off being slammed in a metal door. You know, it's, it was, and then you've got, you know, the holes where the, the lines go out. Mm. A, a baby could crawl through that and go down into the ocean. Mm. It was dangerous to have mm. kids on board. Yeah. You know, um, so it was not recommended and it was like, get the kids off of here. So when people did get pregnant, I was there once when he, when Hubbard Stewart told him that she was pregnant. He didn't say, go have an abortion. He just said to her, let me know what you decide. Yeah. And she decided to have the child and she was sent to AOSH UK mm. and had the child. Mm. That was hers and her husband's choice. Yeah. Now, there were times I know the medical officer and even Kimma encouraged people to have abortions. So, but I saw Hubbard letting someone have their own choice. Yeah. But I've also heard Doreen Casey had told me women at St. Hill were having abortions as well. Mm. But then I've also heard at St. Hill, there was, and from Neville, there was a lot of people shacking up with each other. You know, so <laughs> some might have even been married and have a spouse back in, in America. Mm. So I saw it as an individual's choice at that time with Miscavige, it was forced mm. and people were pulled into ethics and not let out of ethics until they decided to have an abortion. A, a, a woman, a woman I spoke with in the eighties, she was um, put onto the rehabilitation project force. She was screamed at for two weeks to have an abortion under you know, Miscavige's rule. And, and yep. uh, in fact, in the 90s, thinking about it. And she was then, she and another woman who had refused an abortion were detailed to shovel human excrement from a out of a cesspit. You know, um, just this dystopian fantasy world that, that Scientology yeah. has, has turned into. Um, but exactly. And that the whole abortion thing was coming from Miscavige. Mm. It was not other people pushing it. were doing it based off of Miscavige's. Mm. He's the one who ordered the executive director, Guillaume Lazerve, to write that issue. No more children in the Sea Org. Mm. Guillaume had kids himself. He didn't have a problem with having kids. Miscavige is where it came from. It was never Hubbard. Hmm. It was Miscavige. Fair enough. I, yeah. return, returning to, you know, the way that, that Mary Sue Hubbard was in, instructed, you know, it, the first thought that comes to me is the way that, that mafia dons run things, that they won't leave put anything in writing. Do you think from your experience, your significant experience of both Ron and Mary Sue, do you think that Mary Sue at any point went maverick? Do you think that Ron was aware of everything she did? I will say that Mary Sue, anytime a messenger entered the room, she would, she would stop talking. Hmm. If we were on a message run and we came back and she was talking, she would stop. Hmm. She didn't want us to hear what she was briefing him on. 
and then he'd send us off on a message. Plus, when they were in the dining room, there was music playing between us sitting outside the door and their table, there was music playing. So you couldn't hear the conversations. And sometimes he would, she'd get up and close the door in his office. And also their cabins had, were next to each other with a bathroom, a shower in between. You can go from one to the other. And you could see that she'd go over there sometimes and talk to him and go back. You could see it through the grate in the bathroom door. You could see her feet. So she had many conversations with him that messengers could not hear, and she made sure of it. Yeah. Fair enough. It, it pretty much answers the question, doesn't it? Okay. Um, this has been great, and, and I'd like to, in a couple of months or something, come back and talk a bit more, if that's all right with you. Sure. We, yeah, we can absolutely. I've enjoyed this. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, thank you so much. And, and to anybody watching, read Janice's books. And if yes, you know... And Go ahead. And watch my channel on YouTube, Our Scientology Stories, Peeling the Onion. It's Mark Fisher and Janice Grady. Great. Peel and Grady. Great. <laughs> Thanks, John. Thank you. Hi, John here. Thanks for watching. We'd appreciate it very much if you would click like, as well as subscribe, and click the bell for notifications. Every dollar helps, and we welcome new patrons on Patreon. We can make a one-off payment with any currency through PayPal. Thanks so much.